thank you. I'd like to thank uh, everyone here for, for joining in this conversation, especially the uh, organizers of History and Policy and Friends of the Earth uh, for putting this amazing conference together today. It's a real treat to speak to such a wide-ranging audience, and it's certainly more unusual for historians, I think, than it should be. So I second what Lucy said in her opening uh, remarks. So I'm going to be speaking today about being first as a liability in the sense that we often talk about progress, I think, in a range of contexts in terms of firsts as, as markers of that change. So we often measure change in terms of firsts. First female physician, first African-American president, first Jewish prime minister. But are firsts always an effective measure of historical change? Certainly many barrier breakers have served as role models, inspiring those groups they represent to attain goals they might previously have considered unattainable, to imagine different possibilities for themselves. At the same time, however, focusing on firsts as barometers of change can be a somewhat misleading enterprise, and that's really what I'm going to be focusing on in my comments this morning. Why? Why is it potentially problematic? I see two central reasons why we should be wary. First, first can provoke negative or conservative responses, introducing ideas into the public sphere that often do as much to reinforce as to debunk stereotypes. This dynamic is often only compounded by the fact that firsts so often perform their roles in what becomes a veritable fishbowl, where their every move and misstep can be dissected and held up as representative, not just of the individual, but of his or her gender, race, class, sexual orientation, or ethnic identity. Then too, and closely related, firsts can elicit a sense of complacency from the populations or cultures, communities that help produce them, a false belief that a certain issue or prejudice has been overcome. Second, first themselves don't always behave in the ways many in the groups that they represent would like them to or imagine that they will. Many firsts in the fields of women's history, for example, have gotten ahead by distan uh, distancing themselves from other women or even by channeling misogyny. For the purposes of today's talk, I'm going to explore the, uh, these ideas through the case study of Queen Victoria, who reigned from 1837 until 1901. So her rule is really synonymous with the 19th century. And she was the first modern female constitutional monarch in Britain. For a range of reasons, which maybe we can discuss after my talk today, I don't put Queen Anne, who ruled much earlier, uh, in this same category, but we can discuss why that is. I'm going to be drawing in my talk on themes I'm exploring in a book I'm currently writing with a tentative title, The Right to Rule and the Rights of Women in Victorian Britain. And I'm going to show today how this anticipated game changer, that is Queen Victoria, didn't necessarily alter women's status in the nation in the ways that were expected for her, or at least not exclusively so. While Queen Victoria's rule was originally met with great enthusiasm by feminists and other social progressives who insisted that a female head of state would necessarily, it would have to lead to the emancipation of women, they thought, her monarchy, in fact, helped to usher in and even codify a much more conservative set of ideas about women's roles and their relationships to the polity. 
So we tend to forget that at the beginning of her rule, Queen, uh, Queen Victoria was regarded by many as a social revolutionary. We don't often put those two concepts together. Uh, her radicalism stemmed from nothing that Victoria said or did, although as a young monarch, she was openly sympathetic to the Whig party, but rather from the very fact that she was a woman. In 1837, the first year of her rule, several Britons even went on record expressing their conviction that Victoria's sheer presence on the throne, her right, as they put it, to that throne, would initiate a wealth of changes for her female subjects. Consider, for instance, the uh, perspective offered by the Unitarian minister and radical reformer William Johnson Fox who published this inflammatory article in 1832 with the title, A Political and Social Anomaly. As I've put up on the screen here, this is just a small excerpt from this piece that was published in the monthly repository. He writes, and he's speaking here, of what the queen's role will be in government. She selects the persons who are to fill the great offices of state. The tremendous question of peace or war is in her breast. She is the empire to foreign powers, for it seems that courts know nothing of nations but their princes. She administers the laws by her deputies, the judges. She is the head of the army, which is sworn to her service, and the head of the church, selecting the men who, as they prove good or bad spiritual guides, may lead souls to heaven or mislead them to perdition. All this and more not only may, but when the contingency occurs of a woman's being next in succession, must be consigned to her charge or the Constitution is destroyed. So Fox thought he was making a very clever argument here. He wondered how given all of these responsibilities I've just put up on the screen, how women could um, be denied, all other women that is, could be denied the right to an equal education, the right to hold property once married, or the right even to vote in parliamentary elections. And again, this is 1832 that he's making these recommendations. As Fox put it, the condition of women was full of incongruities, but this was one of the most striking anomalies, the fact that a woman could serve as head of state but have no other rights in the country. So for the sake of consistency, if not decency, he urged, Britons needed to incorporate women more fully into their polity. It made no sense to vest one woman with the entire power of state, he wrote, and yet to deny to all others its meanest fraction. And Fox, while somewhat extreme in his recommendations, was not alone in making these kinds of judgments in the 1830s. In the words of Robert Rose, who was a West Indian Creole poet based in Manchester during this period, um, he said this potent queen had the power to transform the circumstances of Britain's women. And in fact, in this poem he wrote uh, for Queen Victoria's coronation in 1838, you can see by reading this text, he really does equate Victoria's rule with a kind of woman power, right? Females should indeed feel joy the most. At length, the period hath arrived to prove that they can in the highest stations move. Our boast it is that fair Victoria can, her subjects rule as ably as a man. And that emphasis on man is Rose's emphasis, I should add. Yet what progressives like Fox and Rose could not have predicted when they made these recommendations in the 1830s was the ways in which so many of their peers would react to this perceived radicalism of Victoria's rule. Instead of trumpeting Victoria's arrival as signaling a change in gender relations, a range of Britons instead used Victoria's rule as an opportunity 
to rethink what it meant to be Queen Regnant itself and to demonstrate how that role needed to be consistent with patriarchal, social, and political systems. It was during Victoria's rule that an array of moralists, journalists, politicians, and pundits began more than ever before to stress the female monarch's dependency on her male advisors. This was as true, they claimed, for Queen Elizabeth I in the 16th century as it was for Queen Victoria in the 19th. The historians James Anthony Froude and Goldwyn Smith, for example, portrayed Elizabeth I as more a pawn than an active figurehead, um, than an active participant in her government. They described her as the figurehead for a robust masculine administration. It was also during Victoria's rule that traditionalists began to draw attention to the particularly circumscribed role of the female sovereign herself within a broader constitutional monarchical framework. This was a process that owed much to be sure to the general push towards democratization during the 19th century, marked by the passage of the Reform Acts of 1832, 1867, and 1884, but that was also fueled by a set of assumptions about women's own special proclivities and dispensations. By the end of the 19th century, Victoria would be largely regarded as a woman who reigned, a monarch who reigned rather than ruled, that is, governed. She was regarded as someone with a moral, sentimental, and ceremonial set of powers, but not as someone possessing any substantive political authority. And for this kind of perspective, which was quite popular by the end of the 19th century, you can look at the kinds of pieces that began appearing in newspapers. I have this one fantastic quote from the Gloucester Citizen from 1891. The queen occupies her position by virtue of the rule that the sovereign reigns but does not govern. Her success as a sovereign is due to the fact that she exercises no political power. Well, on the other hand, she does exercise, and in the most admirable manner, all the social and domestic functions of woman. This is a very common set of opinions that were being circulated at the time of Victoria's uh, golden and diamond jubilees. Finally, it was during Victoria's rule that many of these same men and women used these new understandings of queenship to demonstrate that a female head of state had no bearing on women's rights conversations. If the queen modeled anything, or so they claimed, it was a woman's deference to the men around her, men with the expertise and energy required to run this, again, robust masculine state. Victoria was a model of female dependence, not independence. As the liberal MP Sir Henry James, an outspoken anti-suffragist, reminded his audience during a debate on female political representation in the House of Commons in early May 1871, the queen was not an emblem of female emancipation. And he made this point again and again in his speeches in Parliament. This is what he says. There was one other argument of which much has been made of those who lectured on the subject, namely that our sovereign was a woman. Possibly it would be useless to suggest that the possession of negative political qualities was regarded as a virtue in the sovereign of those realms. But there was another answer to this argument which might have more weight. It was well known that Her Majesty had been fully prepared for her high office by wise statesmen and that she was an Englishwoman with a full knowledge of the English character. That's very important to him. But when it pleased her to take beneath her roof one of her own age, a stranger and a foreigner, she's referring to her husband, Prince Albert, 
and one who had little knowledge and experience of the English people. Her Majesty chose to receive the guidance and direction, the counsel and assistance of that foreigner simply because she was a woman and he was a man. Now, I love this quote because it shows just how far James has to strain to make his argument make sense. We're supposed to be comforted by this fact that she welcomes this foreigner into her home and then is you know, kind of blindly submissive to him. But nevertheless, she, he thinks at least this is a comforting kind of message to be communicating. So these are the kind of arguments that you begin to see uh, circulating in Parliament as well with increasing frequency. So just as radicals like Fox and Rose could not have predicted, well, the kinds of statements that Henry James would make decades later in Parliament, um, so they also could not have predicted how Victoria herself, as a woman, as a ruler, would deviate from their imagined script. The fact that she was first um, or that there was significance being assigned to her as a woman didn't really matter to her, right? Now, radicals in the early 1830s may not have expected Victoria to advocate directly for female emancipation, but they certainly did not think she would be hostile, or at least openly hostile, to their aims. Yet hostile is what she was, or at least what she purported to be. It's very difficult to tell sometimes. In a series of private letters that she wrote to her uncle Leopold, in 1852, to the author Sir Theodore Martin in 1870, and to Prime Minister William Gladstone in 1870 as well, Victoria outlined her commitment to men and women's separate spheres of action and described the push towards women's rights very famously as a mad, wicked folly. And we still know this language today because of how much it ended up resonating in later Victorian and Edwardian culture. So just to give you a sense, a flavor for the kind of language that she's communicating, albeit in private, um, to these various correspondents. As she said in 1852, Albert grows daily fonder and fonder of politics and business and is wonderfully fit for both, uh, showing such perspicuity and such courage. And I grow daily to dislike them both more and more. We women are not made for governing. And if we are good women, we must dislike these masculine occupations. 1870, the movement of the present day to place women in the same position as to professions as men is mad and utterly demoralizing. Here she's thinking especially of women entering the medical profession. The queen feels so strongly upon this dangerous and unchristian and unnatural cry and movement of women's rights that she is most anxious that Mr. Gladstone and others should take some steps to check this alarming danger and to make whatever use they can of her name. Let women be what God intended, a helpmate for a man, but with totally different duties and vocations. I think you're beginning to get the point, but I'll just include the last one because I have it here on my slide. Okay, this is the, this is the one that gets the most play in the Victorian period. The queen is most anxious to enlist someone who can speak and write etc., checking this mad, wicked folly of women's rights, with all the attendant horrors on which her poor, feeble sex seems bent, in forgetting every sense of womanly feeling and propriety. It is a subject which makes the queen so furious that she can't contain herself. God created man and woman different. Let each remain in their own position. Well, perhaps Victoria felt compelled to distance herself from feminism as a sheer act of self-preservation. Perhaps these were her genuine beliefs. Regardless, when her views began to be leaked from about 1876, anti-suffragists seized on them, understandably, with considerable relish. 
and to give you a sense of how anti-suffragists mobilized Victoria's words in their own campaigns in ways probably that far surpassed anything Victoria had in mind, I brought in copies of two slides I found this year during my research that show just how key Victoria was to the anti-suffragist movement in the Edwardian period. And these are two um, flyers that were produced in 1908 1909 by the Women's National Anti-Suffrage League. And the first says Queen Victoria and Government by Women. I realize it's hard to read, but you can see the bold is where they've highlighted Victoria's own words, and they're interspersing her own language with their other older arguments about the very limited constitutional rights and responsibilities of the monarch. And this one I like even more, Queen Victoria and Women's Rights. And I'll just read you the beginning here to give you a sense if you can't see the text in the back. The advocates of women's suffrage have made great play with the names of eminent women of the 19th century. Let anti-suffragists answer with the greatest name of all, the name of Queen Victoria, exclamation point. We women are not made for governing, said the queen, who govern the more effectively because she governed in a woman's way, by effacing herself, by putting her husband forward. And then it goes on and on from there. So this should hopefully at this point, give you a sense for how Queen Victoria is being imagined, or reimagined, I should say, over the course of the 19th century. While Queen Victoria may not have necessarily retarded the 19th century women's rights movement then, she, and when I say she here, what I really mean is both the queen herself and the social and cultural effects produced by her rule, created many unanticipated obstacles for reformers and rights activists. Now, in closing, I have just a few brief caveats about my case study. First, there are marked differences between a first like Queen Victoria and other firsts in women's history or in history more generally. Subjects who've attained their positions or status through some combination of hard work, grit, talent, mentorship, or strong support systems. Victoria didn't have to do anything to become Queen Regnant other than simply be, or I should say simply be born. This may account for some of the particularly misogynistic reactions to her, as well as for some of Victoria's own complacency about gender and politics. Second, even with all of the developments I've charted here, Victoria's rule did leave room for some progressive social change. Even in the face of the conservative responses to her rule, even in the face of her own very harsh assessments of women's rights, sexual egalit egalitarians did find ways to move forward. By claiming Victoria as a public figure, however circumscribed her role, by claiming her as a woman who balanced familial and professional responsibilities, and following the death of her husband in 1861, by claiming her as a single mother attuned to the plight of vulnerable and or otherwise marginalized women. While Victoria couldn't necessarily model women's political authority in the ways earlier radicals had hoped then, she did provide some openings for reconsidera uh, reconsideration of the place of women in the polity. In the end then, I'm not arguing for a rejection of firsts. Firsts are important. But focusing only on the vanguard without scrutinizing their complex social and political effects does not give an accurate picture. I think, of historical change. Thank you.